From our 901 Mission Street studios, you are listening to the San Francisco Chronicle. I'm Peter Hartlaub, pop culture critic for the San Francisco Chronicle, welcoming back Tony Bravo to Armistead Maupin Day on Datebook Podcast. Thanks for having me, Peter. I am so excited to get to talk about Tales of the City with Armistead. Yeah, yeah. Tales of the City, first a column in the San Francisco Chronicle, then a series of books, then a 1993 TV miniseries, and now returning on Netflix? Returning as a newly rebooted series on Netflix that brings the same characters you loved from Armistead's original column plus some new ones into 2019 San Francisco so it's not a direct sequel or an adaptation of any of the new books it is kind of a new creature that we're going to get to witness in June when it comes out Nice. So you're interviewing and moderating, but we also have Ruth Stein, former Daybook writer and editor, my editor, uh, who worked with Maupin. Yes. Uh, Ruth and Armistead worked together in the 1970s in what was then the people section of the Chronicle. Moderating is an interesting word. I did not have to do a lot of talking in this one, Peter. Yeah, it, it's a casual conversation. It's a very fun conversation, which takes some entertaining detours. Yes, and the Chronicle attorneys have been <laughs> consulted. There was a lot lot of tea spilled, some of it scalding hot. Yes, it was a wonderful conversation. I know fans of Tales of the City, The Chronicle, and San Francisco will enjoy it. Yeah, this is a real plus for Barbary Files. That's <laughs> fans of Tales of the City. Datebook Podcast, thanks for listening. My first question to both of you is, how long do you often see each other? How long has it been yeah. since you were last in the I, same I, room? I see him on stage. <laughs> we see him. <laughs> last time was at the Castro, that wonderful documentary. Uh-huh. Uh, that filmmaker actually dated my, my stepson, so I, I know her. Who, Crudy did? Yeah. Jennifer Crudy? Yeah, yeah. Oh, my goodness. Uh, so I was very interested. In it. And it was a wonderful documentary. And you're talking afterwards, so I'm I'm certain that was the last time I saw you. I don't run. What neighborhood are you in now? I'm I'm in the Castro. I'm still in the Castro, so I don't run into you at the grocery store or anything like that. Yeah, that's usually (laughs) how we run into anybody. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we're all going to get food that we can just uh, take home and eat eat as is. Walk back to the house with (laughs) With our ready-made chicken and our. (laughs) I love that we already have the small town San Francisco connection, though. Your son dating the documentarian that did that wonderful film on Armistead. Who's my my stepson. Stepson. And and Jennifer's now married in... I believe, right? She is, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But but yeah, so that I was very interested. I mean, I've seen her other documentaries, but I thought that she did a wonderful job. Oh, I'm I'm forever in debt to her. Yeah, it was so real. She got it. I used to tease her about being a straight girl from... uh, from Marin, who did this thing, you know. Well, that's a perfect uh, segue into what it was like when you came into the People's Department in, in about 1976. We, we were a whole department of straight white women, <laughs> all of us on a first marriage, all of us incredibly naive. Our editor's name was Ruth Miller, and we used to call ourselves, we were all graduates of Ruth Miller Finishing School. And then one day, in comes... Armistead. <laughs> so when did you two initially meet? Do you remember the well, year? Well, it was 76, I think. Yeah, yeah it was 76. And I worked at home for a while. I, I thought I would. I was allowed to write at home. Mm-hmm. But I wanted the... I atmosphere. Wanted, I wanted the atmosphere. I wanted the... And it was invaluable because yeah. um, I sat right next to 
to uh, pa- Pat Staker. And, and I used to listen to her, her phone wow. messages. And I, I listened to her phone <laughs> messages. The legendary society columnist? Yes. 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 That's why I also forgot is no longer with us. Yes, mm-hmm. she's not. Um, what was that atmosphere like? I mean, my generation of journalists have this fantasy of all the president's men or his oh, no. Friday. Yeah. That was on the other side of the file. Yeah, that, and it was all male. That <laughs> was all, all male. All, also all white, mm. but all male. Yeah. <laughs> and this was all white women. And uh, I was in heaven because well, I, I like girls. Armistead, you were so <laughs> So to speak. Cu- you were yeah. so cute, and we all had a crush on you. I hope you know that. <laughs> really? Uh, yes. I mean, it was starting to turn into a little bit like the beguiled after a while. <laughs> <laughs> you were going to do something uh, terrible to me? Well, we just wanted to hang on to you. You still got both your feet. I think <laughs> I mean, you survived. Barely. <laughs> but here's, here's what would happen. We would all get to the women. We all get to work on time mm-hmm. because, right, we were all graduates of the Miss Miller's finishing school. And Armistead would bound in anywhere from an hour to an hour and a half later. He'd pop down on his chair and say, Oh my God, did I have a night last night? And we'd all just sort of hover around you while you described this, this part of the city that we just couldn't even imagine. I mean, you were, you were our window into that world. I was your little horn dog. You, you were. <laughs> you were. And it was, it was so enlightening and kind of amazing. And, and your life was so amazing. The people that you knew and that you were socializing with, and then every day he would he would sort of out someone else, uh-huh. and I I was like totally there, right up into the time that he came in one day and told me that both Joanne Woodward and Paul Newman were both gay, and then I started thinking, is that could that be? Well, I'd have to amend that <laughs> to say that he was bisexual and she was very patient. Ah. <laughs> Patience is a virtue. Well, I never knew after that whether whether I should completely believe you. but <laughs> Well, you probably shouldn't. Well, here's my question. So you may have gotten there on time, Ruth, because you were a graduate of Miss Miller's <laughs> Finishing School. But it was the 70s. You wrote a singles column. Were you having your well, own wild night? No, this was uh, my life was sort of divided into three different categories. In the time I knew Armistead, I was married to an extremely stuffy psychiatrist, living in a huge house in Pacific Heights. I think you came to one of my birthday parties there. Uh, so I was sort of Pacific Heights matron, uh-huh. and I was, I, you couldn't get it more innocent than I was. <laughs> oh, really? Oh, yes. This, this was in my 20s and then into my early 30s. I've never known you as an innocent, so I'm intrigued. But part of so what I was trying to tell you what an important part Armistead was in my education of the other world out there because this was really where I was hearing what was going on in San Francisco I mean, and not just me all your readers were hearing what was going yeah. on in San Francisco yeah. well it was a, it was a gold mine for me because it wasn't the the burgeoning gay scene mm-hmm. wasn't covered at all Randy Schultz came along as the the openly gay reporter at the Chronicle right. but before then uh, all you got was a comment about uh, in Herb Cain's column about uh, Charles Pierce's show or something oh, to that yeah, effect. Oh, yeah, but that it was, was, that was all niche. extreme. It was all, you know, it was like... It well, wasn't he was a fan, so he, <laughs> he, we, he celebrated those mm-hmm. things. So but, but when I started my singles column, Armistead had long gone and was very famous and was like mm-hmm. in this whole other world now where he was not stopping by the Chronicle. <laughs> but I, so I wrote my singles column in the end of the 1980s. Ah. And so I was single for about... Uh, 10, 12 years be, uh, between husbands, but Armistead 
really only and you really only knew me when I was married the first time yeah. when I was young. And so what did you, what, what did you think? Did you think I was prissy? What what was your impression? Of I me? didn't think you were you were fun like all those other uh, women. Right, yes, you we didn't seem unsophisticated to me. Well, we but maybe all, you were faking it. We were really faking well. it. We wanted we wanted to impress you. <laughs> well, it strikes me that Pacific Heights matrons certainly do show up a great deal in tales. Did any of Ruth's stories um, translate at all into the into tales? Well, not Ruth's mm-hmm. story. Only the Lomans, I can tell that one. The Lomans? Remember, remember when they came in? Well, nobody even knows the Lomans. What Lomans no, that, that you know? group dressing room, of course, right. the well, great discount. Well, they used to tear the, the tags out, and I'm a oh, huge that shopper. Is from you. Right. And I came in one day and said, oh, look at this suit. I mean, it might have been this suit. And, and it, I said it was a Calvin Klein, and it was regularly $100, and I got it for, I don't know, $5, and they didn't have the labels in it. And he was listening to every word and saying, tell mm-hmm. me more and more and more. I think we actually ended up also in one of your, in one of the tales. Yeah, series, Franny series. Halcyon was tearing the labels right, out. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> so that, I think that was probably the only. I heard uh, about the Society Kleptomaniac. <gasps> from Pat. Oh, yeah, Pat Sager had the greatest stories. Yeah, they're okay. Please go on. That's also one that I have heard stories about independent well, I, tales. Well, I told um, uh, who did I tell about it? Denise Hale told the Queen of uh-huh. International Society. Still, <laughs> still very much so. I know. Um, uh, told she told me that uh, that's when the, I had I struck terror in their hearts because nobody was supposed to know that story that was really kept to- closely amongst the people who knew this woman uh, so you really were kind of blowing the lid off of some of these more closed cloistered worlds I mean that is a detail that I, I think gives you a perfect picture of some of the underbelly of that scene but how he- could I have possibly passed up the fact that a, a Fabergé egg fell out of the pantyhose of this woman when she was leaving a brunch. But, but we heard all the stories. <laughs> Apparently, the shops, nobody would embarrass her. They would just add it on to her bill, and her family uh-huh. would, would pay it. Um, so I, I heard a I, I, I Maybe, you know, I'm trying to think if there was anything I specifically told you, but I was like the assistant to the assistant society editor when I mm-hmm. first came to the Chronicle, uh, when I was, I was 25 when I first started. And I was going to a lot of these social parties and trying to figure out who all these people right. were. I finally figured out that the people who wanted to be photographed were not the people that we wanted. And we had to go f- find the people that didn't want to be photographed. I love how some things remain true years <laughs> later. Um, I have to ask, uh, Pat was the society editor. Was right. Nikki the assistant to Pat that you uh, No, Nikki was actually with Miller's assistant at that point. Um, may- maybe I was the assistant. I don't know. Uh-huh. I, I mean, I don't I just know I had to answer the phone a lot. And uh-huh. <laughs> so. I have to say the the Chronicle alumni pool still um, ends up being very present in the lives of a lot of current Chronicle reporters. So I, I love hearing a lot of these names of some people I've, I've had the pleasure of meeting over the years, too. Yeah, yeah that, that, that's great that you do, because it, it, the longer I stayed, the more I had the impression that nobody could, could people could care less, except <laughs> maybe Armistead, because he, cause he became yeah. famous. But, but all these other people that were, that were here, mm-hmm. you know, and, but, you know, the Zodiac uh, brought those, some of those people's names out again, mm-hmm. Paul Avery. Um, yeah, the film, the Zodiac film. Zodiac film, yeah, and, and I had, a, um, I was supposed to be interviewing Robert Downey Jr., who played him in the movie, but because he knew that I knew Paul, he actually ended up interviewing me about Paul. <laughs> and um, so there, there were there are some chronicle names that that 
I don't live on, but no one's had, I think, the kind of success that you have sort of internationally. And now in another TV show, which is what, the fourth? The fourth, fourth yeah. The fourth, yeah. I wanted to ask a little bit about something that you've both touched upon, which is being a woman at the Chronicle at this time, being one of the few, one of the only openly gay men. Were there any special challenges that seemed to arise from working in an environment that was still a little bit, it was new to be out in the workplace. It was even new in some senses to be a woman in the workplace. I mean, there was this was a time of tremendous activism. Well, there there had always been women at newspapers, but they wrote about fashion and society and food. So what was really different about this time, and, and, and in fact, should credit Ruth Miller, because this was her doing, is that she finally got us out of just writing about those restricted subjects and letting us write about big subjects. Like I think the Chronicle was the first story, first paper to do anything about rape, and I was the model in that picture. I was screaming. In fact, I just uh. saw. That's what they used to use the Chronicle people to, for these. They would never use this today, but they wanted me to scream. I guess because my mouth is sort of large. Oh, for like a so, photo so illustration. That, that, that was the photo illustration for the rape piece for every single day. And then we had one of the, we had one of the photographers out in Golden Gate Park who was ostensibly about to pounce on some woman to rape her. And I remember we got a call from uh, from someone saying, you know, I think that's my son, and I'm terrified for him. And <laughs> so so what what was happening, just ha- starting to happen in that time, mm-hmm. is that, that it was breaking out to be, from being a women's page, and that's what, when I started, first started uh-huh. there, it was, it was a women's page, to being a feature section, which obviously was much more interesting. We... I, the people in our department didn't have much interaction with the, the guys on city side. Mm-hmm. I mean, I wasn't one to go to the bar. I was, remember, I was the society matron at that point. I wasn't one to go to the bar after work, so maybe some of the women did that and might have gotten to know people. But, mm-hmm. but I didn't. I didn't really know that. And I and I was thinking about that in terms of all these harassment things that are coming out now. And and I was remembering one, one story which was. Um, I didn't. I react, I didn't know how to react to it at the time. But the fact that it stuck in my mind all these years must mean that I, that it obviously upset me. But I was, I was going down in the Chronicle elevator, and the, whole, the rest of the elevator was filled with men, and I was right next to Herb Kane, and I remember this so well. And he turned to me and he said, "You know, you, I can see your bra through that blouse," and I was like. <laughs> I wanted to get out of the elevator. I was, I mean, I was totally, uh-huh. and I, I don't know, is that harassment? I mean, I suppose it is. And it's to certain, I remember Dave Perlman took me aside afterwards, that, that science writer who finally retired at age 200 or something. And, and <laughs> 98, he, Ruth, that's 98. not exaggerating. And he, sa- he said, don't worry about it. That's just her. But, um, but that was probably the closest I'd ever. I'm afraid had. that's what got said in those days about everything. But, yeah. Don't, don't worry about it. That's just. Right. You're right. That man. What was your experience like? I mean, you were writing about, you started to write about gay subject matter in Tales. Did you ever have any friction with uh, the, for lack of a better description, the straight white men who ran the paper? Oh, oh God! (laughs) It was a way of life for me. Um, They were nice. Gordon Pates was a really nice man. He was very avuncular Mm -hmm. about me. When he found out I was gay, he'd just say, it's such a waste. I don't know who he thought I was being wasted. <laughs> believe me, I, it, believe me I'm era. not being wasted. <laughs> but, it, but it was that notion that uh, a fine young man should be straight, you know. And I had, to, I had the uh, unique opportunity of being questioned on fiction in the newspaper. I mean, they would tell me they, I couldn't say certain things mm-hmm. or they were offended by the tone of 
uh, of certain things. Uh, when I did a sort of manifesto when uh, Anita Bryant announced her yes. campaign, and I, I read it in the Chronicle this of the this, Wires when it first came out. The Save Our Children campaign? Yeah, the Save Our Ch Children campaign. And I said, to, when I came out of the closet, I nailed the door shut, mm -hmm. saying, because I'd heard too many gay men who were saying, maybe we need to cool it for a while. Mm -hmm. And um, somebody, in the, bless them, some woman in the people department uh, tipped me off. I can't remember who it was now, but tipped me off that the front office was going to pull that column mm. because it would offend the people in the sunset. Oh, goodness. That was code for I don't know what. I don't know who the people in the sunset were, but they were subscribers that might be offended. And, uh, and I t t called up Dick Tyriot, who is now a dear friend and was nice at the time, but he, would, he said, we, have to, we can't let that happen, and said, I'm going to— He was the publisher. Yeah. 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 Is, this is Michael's famous letter to his mother in the hospital? Not that particular one. There was another one that, uh, that's not in the books mm -hmm. because it didn't fit, uh, but I insisted it be in the paper. Uh, and um, Dick said, oh, you don't mean that, you know. And I said, yes, I do. I'm going to quit if you don't, if you don't run it. And... Uh, Two hours later, he called back and said, oh, all right. I thought I'd killed the goose that laid the golden egg for those two hours. So, so what, there's one other thing about Armistead that, that um, I, you need to know. They, they made a deal of it in the documentary. Deadlines were not his best moment. No. <laughs> That's Again, some things are Putting consistent in journalism. Um, he just maybe it was because he had too much fun talking to all of us, and because he came because he kind of came in late to begin with. But was, what, what, what was your deadline? Noon, one o'clock? I can't remember. I don't even I remember. Um, and I know I remember Ruth Miller coming by my yeah, pa my yeah. table and saying, "Right, <laughs> right." Yes, and, and I, that always works. And then yeah. later, when you're working at home, she used to take a cab to your house to get your copy, and then she'd have to sit in the cab and wait for you to. I don't to, remember that. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Did she? she? Did, yeah. I remember catching cabs myself because that's the way you got copy across town in those days. <laughs> no, this is no, pre-internet pre or a messenger service, maybe. Would have been the other option. No, I, don't I think Ruthie came to your house. I remember her talking about it. Did she? Yeah. Bitterly, huh? Bit but, <laughs> you, but you know, I always thought you needed that kind of pressure. Last well, I was had a, always had a deadline. I yeah. had a story I had to keep telling forever. That's what I promised the Chronicle that I would could do this mm -hmm. forever. And, and so I refused to be ruled by it, but. I did come up with it eventually. You'd rather be timeless than time timely. Is no time, time, time rather be timeless than timely. That's good. That, that, that's true. It was Truman Capote. <laughs> <laughs> Arma said there was a story you were telling me before we started recording uh, about bubblegum on the knee of your jeans yes, yes. in the publisher's office. Um, yeah. Um, th there was a sex club a few blocks from the Chronicle. I remember asking you about this earlier and being delighted by the proximity that the Chronicle had to it this was, scene. You could go down and avail yourself of something called the Businessman Special, <laughs> which is a, a cut rate at the glory holes. Uh -huh. and, uh, and I went down there one day, and uh, when I came back, I was immediately called into the office of Charlie Tyriot, mm -hmm. the senior Tyriot, the big guy. 
uh, for a conversation about something. I never, I never spoke to him, and he never spoke to me. He was mostly interested in things that involved duck hunting and the society thing. Well, I can tell you one more thing about him, though. Remember Jeannie downstairs who used to have that little cigar stand and magazines? Yeah. Uh, she, she, was, she was an older woman, but she had huge boobs, and she, was very, she always like, did her hair. Anyway, she said that Charlie used to go down there and look at the girly magazines. He would stand there. It's well, like, there were girly magazines were for girly sale magazines in for the sale. Chronicle yeah. lobby. There, there, well, wasn't, it wasn't exactly in the lobby. It was right. It was on the side of the building. <laughs> oh. the entry, but whatever. Well, that's yeah. understandable. There then. were, and he would come down there, and he he was completely unabashed. He didn't care who saw him, and he'd just stand there, and, and so he had another interest too. <laughs> okay, so the bubble gum on your he, knee, though. Well, so there were no girly magazines present at the time. <laughs> I assume. Um, no, because he wouldn't buy them. He just read them down there. <laughs> can't fix cheap. He can't take them home. <laughs> um, Charlie, actually, while we're on a tangent here, uh, at one point, Gordon Pates, the managing editor, said, listen, Charlie thinks you're writing about him because I had created this character, Edgar Halcyon, who was right. one of the first families of Hillsborough. Sure. He had a wife who was sometimes seen tipsy in in public appearances. Uh-huh. Uh huh. you know, he thought that I was sending him up. I wasn't. Mm-hmm. So I thought, what can I do to make him sympathetic and differentiate him from Charlie? And that was when Edgar Halcyon's fatal illness <gasps> came into play. And that. Really and dominates Charlie, that first tales. Yeah, and then Charlie died Char- no, shortly after. <laughs> I know. And bless his heart. I mean, <laughs> maybe he thought I was clairvoyant at that point. Wow, because it was not something that was talked about. No, Spooky. he was relatively young. He was in his sixties, I think. When yeah, he died. Young, yeah, young, yeah, young, young. Yeah. Wow. Um, I liked them all. I mean, I really did like them all. All of the straight uh, all white of the men straight that white ran the Chronicle. Men, but I had to. Um, Stand up to them a lot. What? Well, what about the, the just the guys? The guys who are running in the city side. Did you ever go out for drinks with them? Not a lot. No, I didn't go out to drink drinks with them. They, they never. And, con- and you know, we didn't close up the shop together either. You know. Right. Uh-huh. Right. Yeah. No. 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 I know. But I just wondered if they they were also reading what you were writing, and I just wondered if they were kind of curious to know a little bit more about the person. Who was I writing. well. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't. Th- I didn't. They they didn't show any interest, okay. but. Mm-hmm. There must have been some. <laughs> so this meeting, you're at post-lunchtime businessman activities. I had a big wad of pink bubble gum on the knee of my jeans. <laughs> From your lunchtime activities. From my lunchtime Just activities. Conveniently placed? Uh, well, I didn't place it anywhere. I mean, I didn't <laughs> put it down there. Um, no, it... it why am I being so coy? You made me blush last time. I'm, I'm aiming I, I, for making you blush, Armistead. Yeah, well, I, I was kneeling, <laughs> and I wasn't in church. <laughs> um, I want to ask, um, there is a term that we have now in kind of contemporary office culture where people will talk about somebody that they're close to in the office and say, oh, you know, so-and-so is my work husband, so-and-so is my work wife. Um, I'm curious if either one of you... Well, you were at the Chronicle, ever had a friendship that was to that degree of closeness, like a, a work buddy that was, you know, maybe not your lunchtime buddy, because we know you were doing a lunch Armistead, but, <laughs> you know, somebody that you kind of shared the battle with. Well, you're right. I had, I had 
all of these women basically to <laughs> to share with. Um, so you, but I, you know, I was a, nobody else was writing it with me. I had to it had to come out of my head. Yeah. So there was nothing. Yeah. There was no labor that in, in, involved that. Um, uh, Pat Steger was a source of incredible information. It was Pat Steger that got me in trouble with Pat Montendon. Oh. Oh yes. Who's now in L.A. leading this whole new life. Did you know that? Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm her Facebook friend. Oh, yeah. She I has a too. very active Facebook yeah. life. Yeah. No, I am, too. So I'm, 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 I'm she's always. Yeah, I turned her on to it and and sent 400 homosexuals her way. <laughs> so <laughs> oh, Pat, that's why she has so many people. That's why. <laughs> so Pat became the character of Prue. Am I correct? Prue Giroux. She was uh, originally named Pam Fontainebleau until <laughs> the lawyer said that's too close. <laughs> I was oh. at, I was at one of those lunches. Maybe I told you about one of these lunch. you, you the roundtable lunches. Yeah, yeah. She had a bell, so so we were actually talking about abortions. It was a very intense. Rape. Dis- well, the, the time I was there was, oh, abortions, was abortions, and a couple of really well-known San Francisco women started talking about the fact that they had an abortion. One of them said because her husband made her, and none of us knew this. But Pat's timing for ringing the bell was really off. So she cut this woman off right mid-story where she was, like, telling something that she'd never told anyone before and something. <laughs> <laughs> but she had this amazing penthouse that, um, that at nine, uh, George nine, and Charlotte Schultz now live in? The, yes. The which very is, it's one. really like an airport hangar more than, a, than it is. Or like a savings and loan in the sky. Yeah, it's, it's, <laughs> and they can't possibly we live in that whole space. They must just have like a you know a couple of rooms where they actually maybe they rent. take renters. Who knows? I, I live a block away from there, so I'm I'm kind of like in, in the shadow of that of that building now. But but to be invited to that one of those lunches was to sort of mean that you'd made it some way. Did, did you go? Did you go to a lunch? No, no. Oh, you never you never went. Oh, it was all women. Certainly Certainly not women after that ran. Right? <laughs> <laughs> but um, it was uh, it was strange. It was some something between. A lunch and you know like an, an AA meeting or something. You had, <laughs> it was you, the seventies. It was the seventies, and so the feminism was on the rise. Right, you had to confess something, and and, and it was con- confessional. Involved. Right, confessional. I remember Herb Cain said about uh, Pat Montandon that she was too um, she she was too proud to take her husband's name, but not to take his money. You remember that? Yeah, he was a lot of mean stuff from Herb on on, on her. I'm, I remember that you weren't very happy with Showtime because they didn't really put the money into it that you had hoped. Is Netflix doing this up all, all? Well, the the big the big drawback for Showtime was we had to go shoot it in French. Right, Canada. right. Uh-huh. Except for those four scenes. <laughs> and there are exteriors that were done for the new series here in San Francisco, yes, from were. what I understand. Yeah, um, it's you will never know that the studio is in. In the mm-hmm. Bronx, so a lot of it was shot in the studio, but they did shoot a whole yeah. bunch here. As the well. tallest studio in the Bronx, so we could get the whole three-story, twenty-eight Barbary Lane. Oh, in fantastic! It. It's just gorgeous. What I noticed in those early f- pictures that were released the other day were you. It, it seemed like Netflix really captured the light of Russian Hill beautifully. That golden glow—that's the thing they did. that, to me, is impossible to try and replicate. Um, uh, I should. Give credit to some cinematographer, but I can't get, can't <laughs> say who it was. Um, but I thought the same thing as soon as I saw the dailies. Oh my God! It looks like San Francisco for once. It Absolutely, doesn't, doesn't have that flat LA light that often happens when 
San Francisco stories are shot in Hollywood. That is one of the best regional cinematic burns I have heard, by the way. That flat L.A. light. I'm going to remember that. (laughs) I was curious on IMDb. They had most of the writers for the episodes, but then they had your name on there as well. Um, You can write any of the episodes? I I was sat in the writer's room with them. Oh, so that's why. Okay, that's Uh, why. And was in on the the early discussions. Uh Uh-huh. But we had an amazing showrunner named Lauren Morelli, who was uh, the, one of the writers for Orange is the New, New yeah, Black. Yeah, I, uh-huh. I want to do a story on them when, when the series actually plays. I think we should do something on the writers and, and what it was well, like. Well, she, to... you know, she met her wife in the cast of... Oh, really? Samira, wow. Samira Wiley from that, that's Orange is the New story. Black is, is married to Lauren Morelli now. Wow. And... Uh, uh, and she just had, she told me at the beginning of it, she was really nervous because she said, I know, you know, because I basically said, take it and let the story continue. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she said, I promise you I will maintain the DNA of the characters, which is what you want. You want it to yeah. sound like them uh, and to grow like they would grow. And she did that in an amazing way. So was there any talk about your writing it or you didn't want to do it? I didn't want to. It's a lot of work. Ten writers worked on this. Different writers took different episodes, but then she she, uh, shaped it. So you're happy with it? Very, very. They're all queer. Uh, And at one point I said, I was going to say, do you think maybe we ought to have one straight writer? And I thought... And I thought, well, we only had one queer writer when I was doing it. There's there's enough straight writers. Gay people can imagine straight lives. They have no problem doing that. So speaking of writing, I'm curious. um, Given San Francisco today in 2019, if either one of you were at the beginning of your careers, do you think you would still want to go into journalism, tell stories at a newspaper? Do you think that's the path you would choose given the stories that are available to tell here at the moment? Yeah, today. It's not so much the stories that are here to tell. I had a captive audience. Everybody read the Chronicle yeah. every morning. That, that's what makes it so different. From and today. that's how it's different from yeah, today. Yeah. There are too many distractions. And everybody read you. I mean, that, your your column caught on so fast. You know, they tried to do it a couple times with other writers, but it fell so flat. I don't know if you knew that, or if you ever saw them in the paper, but but there was just something. I mean, it was within two weeks, everybody was talking about you were on the. There were television shows that you were on talking about it. I mean, you became a San Francisco celebrity. After not a very long time doing it, you know, and I was very lucky. I had <clears throat> it was organic with my own coming out. I mean, I was yeah. feeling that joy and exhilaration of being myself mm-hmm. and being able to tell a story at the same time. So um, uh, those were heady days. It was fired with that. Seven other major American newspapers tried to do tales, um, and the year after it appeared and. They took some guy from the city desk and said, here, right. you'll be the yeah. one who does this. Yeah. Yeah. And it wasn't growing out of his heart. So so I think I'm, I, I think, think you can't you just can't underestimate the, the um, how exciting it was to work for a newspaper in the 70s and the 80s because everybody you knew read your stuff. There was no you know, you, you weren't getting this immediate response the way you do mm-hmm. on, you know, on the Internet, obviously. You didn't even get very many letters, but any time you went out, people were, they just conversing with the story that 
I mean, I was writing all about mm-hmm. all kinds of different things with Armistead. It was obviously something different. People right. wanted to know what was going to happen next in its column. But it was just, it, working for the newspaper was like the best high you could get. I mean. <laughs> yeah. And, and it was a better job. It was, it was a, the best. It, it was be best as our first lady would say. Oh, please. <laughs> um, but it was, it was just, it was just really, really fun. Mm-hmm. And the department was growing out of the women's pages to be able to do all these exciting mm-hmm. kinds of feature stories and profiles. And then when I got moved into movies, I thought I was in heaven because that's all I wanted to do was watch movies anyway. Yeah. But in terms of my own professional uh, uh, whatever, I think Armistead may know this because I, I called you once to see, I remember you, I was going to we were trying to get Ian McKellen to come to the festival, and you were telling me that he was sort of in the process of dropping out, and you really didn't think that was going to happen, and you were right. But anyway, so I have, I have since I left the Chronicle mm-hmm. 10 years ago, I have started this very successful film festival called the Mostly British Film Festival. and we covered it, yeah. Yeah, then you great, covered it, right? Festival. And we, 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 we've brought um, Minnie Driver here and, and uh, Bill Nahi and, and John Froggatt and uh, uh, Bob, Gelser, Bob Geldof. And we've just had these amazing guests. Um, and, and I'm really very happy being a producer of that series. So mm-hmm. I think sometimes that if, if I'd been born in a different time, and I was starting out now. Maybe I'd like to be a producer on one of the television shows because that's really where it's at now. And there's mm-hmm. so many wonderful ideas. And I and I know how to be mm-hmm. a producer. Um, maybe there's a tales spinoff one day. Yeah. Can, can I do another? <laughs> yeah. Can I produce it? So I was um, thinking the same thing though. We were both wanted to move towards movies. And, right. And right. We did. Yeah, that's right. In and so, ways, so for about absolutely. twenty twenty years, I got to you know interview well, it's Paul be your, Newman. Your asked, asked him if he was bisexual. Did you? No. <laughs> what a nice way to tie it all back in. That's a beautiful. That's a beautiful piece of symmetry there. But I did talk to Joanne about it. She's joking again. (laughs) This is all in. I want to close by asking something that occurred to me looking at those preview images of the new tales yesterday. There is a photo of your new Michael Tolliver, Murray Bartlett, with Laura Linney that uh, even though that role has been cast um, by a couple, has had a couple different actors in it over the years. There was this way they were looking at each other that I thought really reflected the one of the core themes of this, the friendships between Michael and the women in his life. Specifically I love that Michael picture and Marianne. Too. Yeah. I want to ask, um, why do each of you think there has been, um, for many people, this very strong bond between women and gay men over the years? I mean, Liz Taylor and Monty Clift, uh, you and Laura Lenny, Armistead, uh, why, I saw you at the Oscars with Laura Linney. I was covering them, and I looked down, and I got, oh, my God, there's Armistead on the red carpet. Is it a shared language? Is it a shared type of experience? Is it just, uh, you know, a love of men? That's <laughs> the A love of men helps because you can talk about men together. <laughs> uh, but you can be each other's protector in, in, if it's a good, strong friendship. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe that's not so much true anymore, but... Um, but I love that picture of Murray and Laura because it does reflect that they that they love each other. They feel safe yeah. with each well, other. Well, I think too that um, anytime you can take sex out of the equation of a relationship between a man and a woman, um, I think you're going to be on on solid ground because sex always messes it up <laughs> in some ways. I mean, sometimes in good sure. ways, but it it just messes it up. Well said. So, so do you mind if I just interject a question and we can both answer? Feel free, Ruth. We're getting older. We don't have to acknowledge it or not, but 
are, are these good times for you being older? Because I'm finding it a really sort of fun time. In I'm my loving life. it, except for the physical thing. Yeah, I have type two diabetes, uh. and so there's nerve damage in my feet, and it's yeah. not as easy to walk, which drives me crazy because I used to love to wander yeah. all around yeah, the city. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. But um, I'm in, I'm in a Pilates class. I'm feeling my body. Are you? That's really great for old it's, people. It's good for old people. It's good for balance. Yeah. I'm in Pilates too. Can we all meet up sometime? <laughs> do you do the machines or do you? Do no, no, no. Do, no, I don't do the machines. Oh, you, you do, do the machines? No, the I, Cadillac I do. and the reformer. Oh no, no, I, I do. I do the class. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. But, um, oh, we so white. <laughs> I think that's the next podcast we all do. All of us at a Pilates class together. Everybody getting in touch with our core. But it's it's just nice not to. Oh, I don't know. Just not to have to be proving anything to not anybody. Not to give a fuck. Not, not to give a fuck, right, you know? Yeah. Exactly. I it's... hope that makes it past the Chronicle sensors. <laughs> it's a beautiful button to end on. You are listening to the San Francisco Chronicle. Thank you to Tony Bravo, Ruth Stein, and Armistead Maupin. Our producer today is me, Peter Hartlob. Supervising producers are King Kaufman and Libby Coleman. Executive producer is Tim O'Rourke, and our editor-in-chief is Audrey Cooper. Our music is Mozart's Symphony 40 in G minor by Blue Dot Sessions. Read our columns and subscribe to the Chronicle at www.sfchronicle.com. Chronicle podcasts are on Apple Podcasts and other streaming services. Listen at www.sfchronicle.com slash podcasts with an S. Mm-hmm.